0: KRCL, Salt Lake City.
1: Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Get ready for kind of a 4th of July weekend with camping and movies. Suggestions coming up this hour. National Parks Guide Alex on the map and the folks at Silvergate Lodging in uh, it's cook, cook City in Silvergate up there in Montana. They're going to tell us about life up in the parks and how the flooding's affected it. Dino Don is in town to debut robotic dinosaurs at Thanksgiving Point and radio actor's Autumn Thatcher is going to talk with iconic Rolling Stone editor and music writer Ben Fong Torres, whose life story is told in a new Suzanne Kai documentary now streaming on Netflix It's about Ben's life, an epic sweep through the world of rock and roll. He's the American-born son of Chinese immigrants, grew up in Chinatown with only a radio to the outside world. It's now streaming on Netflix. So let's get going. First of all, hello to everybody down at the Farmer's Market at Liberty Park. Get your veggies on till dusk. Dino Don, one of Steven Spielberg's personal dinosaur consultants, during the filming of the original Jurassic Park, He's in town tomorrow night to showcase the robots, the dinosaurs he's designed for Thanksgiving points, Dinosaur Island experience in the Ashton Gardens, followed by a special screening of the original Jurassic Park. I think he's going to do commentary as the film goes, uh, commenting on what they got right and got wrong as far as science goes. And that's where we started our conversation.
2: Uh, Well, I'm looking for the science in any Jurassic Park movie. Uh... That's not what they're about, so I have to be understanding, you know. If they were going to be accurate, we'd be bored out of our minds.
1: <laughs> How accurate is it that we could, from um, oh, what is it, amber? The 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 dinosaur frozen in amber actually do what's on the screen? What do you think,
2: dinosaur Dog? Uh The the odds uh, that maybe uh, skating through hell would be a higher percentage. <laughs> I mean, specifically, if you want to know, um, in the movie, they, they uh, find amber with a mosquito's blood that it sucked from a dinosaur, from which they reconstruct the DNA using a frog. So the, among the 27 places that go wrong, would go wrong is that, first of all, birds are living dinosaurs, not, no relation to frogs. We don't have any amber as old as dinosaurs. If we did... It wouldn't have the mosquito in it. If it had the mosquito in it and the blood, it likely wouldn't be from a dinosaur whose hide is too thick for you to get into. Other than that, perfect.
1: I should have given a spoiler alert and had every parent cover their children's ears. So what did they get (laughs) right, Dino Don? They had me
2: advise on the movie.
1: Was, <laughs> well, tell was... me about that. And, and and how many arguments did you get into? I was talking to some folks who creative consulted on a completely ir- not-related topic, and they would have these arguments about does it serve the story or not? Did you end up having to, you know, maybe waffle on some of the science? Uh,
2: <laughs> more waffles in that movie than at the pancake house. <laughs> um, no, actually, the... the um, <clears throat> You know, a lot of times, maybe even the advisors you talk to, we're there for more ceremonial reasons. They want to show that they talk to us. But they talk to us way too late. They've already built the dinosaurs. <laughs> and so uh, when I first got a look at them, I said, well, man, these are these bear no relation to any dinosaurs I know. And they said, do you want the free lunch or what?
1: Craft <laughs> um, services for you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's right. If you can get shrimp in the desert, I mean, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. But um, seriously, I, you know, the... The movie, and I knew the, the author, Michael Crichton. That's how I got connected to the movie. In fact, I asked him, "What's what's with this amber stuff?" He said, "I didn't know how to do it, so I just made it up."
1: Oh, well, I love it! I love it.
2: <laughs> so, a lot of the stuff in the movie is for entertainment reasons. So, I, you know, I tried say, suggesting, "Look, these dinosaurs weren't this size; they didn't do any of this stuff." But in the end, you know, it did inspire a lot of kids to get into paleontology. And the reason I was there. I'm the only guy who didn't get paid on that whole movie, by the way. My mother still doesn't let me forgive it.
1: The original Jurassic Park. The
2: original. The original movie and the best one, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, at the end of the movie, I said to Spielberg, you know, you got like 17 million things wrong. And to his credit, he didn't say, shut up. He said, what? what, what? So and I said, "Look, give me all the sets and props. All the animals. I'm going to make an exhibit to tour science museums of what's wrong with this movie. And it was a great vehicle to teach kids about the real life of dinosaurs, and we raised three million dollars for dinosaur research, which is a big deal in that field. Yeah, so it came deal. out. It came out well.
1: All right. Way. So, did they get anything right?
2: Um. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. I can't think. Of, the Sam Neill is based on a character in that movie, and in the last one, when he comes back who who uh, hates children and loves dinosaurs. The real character he's based on I actually loved children and hated grown ups. The the biggest error I think in the first movie was that the T Rex do you remember what he did to the lawyer on the toilet?
1: Uh, yes, I do. It was one of my favorite and frightening scenes.
2: Yeah, so that's this professional courtesy between <laughs> these two professions. They they would never have done this.
1: Oh my gosh. So <laughs> Uh, you're in yeah. you're in town. You're in Utah for um, this new exhibit at Thanksgiving Point. you brought a bunch of your yep. robotic dinosaurs. What can folks see?
2: The only chance they'll get to see, I think, full sized dinosaurs as accurate as they've ever been made. I mean, it's it's great to look at them on the screen, and they're really not so inaccurate on in the movies. They're they're good enough to really scare you. But when you see them in real life, you, it's the only way to really get a sense of how spectacular these things were. That you know, 10 times the size of any animal that lives today. So you're going to get to see dozens of those animals up close and personal. And we worked with scientists to make the most accurate robots that have ever ever been built. I'll be out there tomorrow night to talk to suckers who come out about what's wrong in the movie, what's right with our dinosaurs, uh, and then we're going to show the original Jurassic Park movie.
1: I love it. So the dinosaurs, the robotic dinosaurs that you have at Thanksgiving point, can you give us uh describe them? Which ones are they?
2: Well, the highlight of any show is T-Rex. Yes. So this is the 40 foot version, uh, full size. And a lot of the exciting guys you live with, like you know, Triceratops and others who are familiar. But we also have dinosaurs that you've never seen before, including one that's named after me.
1: Oh, yeah. What's that one?
2: Well, my last name is Lessum and the dinosaur is Lessomsaurus, and it has an unusually small brain.
1: <laughs> For a dinosaur. Okay. And
2: a, big belly. and a big belly. I think that was the inspiration involved. <laughs> the scientist named it after me, which was very nice of him, because he assumed that if I was giving away all this money from the exhibit that toured, that I must be rich. It's a very nice honor, and uh, you, people can go see a dinosaur that looks somewhat look like me. Large stomach, small brain.
1: Well, from the first Jurassic Park movie where you didn't make a dime as a yes. the scientific consultant to today, your love for dinosaurs sounds like it has done nothing but grow. What's your favorite factoid to leave us with here about dinosaurs and um, oh, their relation oh, to oh. us, maybe like anything we can glean from from their existence and where
2: we may be headed? You know what the most surprising thing to me about them of all is it's, it's not even that they're some of them are so enormous said that of all the kids I've met, which are literally tens of thousands who say that they're going to be dinosaur paleontologists, in the world, there are a total of 35. Really? Yeah. What I- happened?
1: All right, kids. You're not following through for Dino Don. He needs you to be true to your word moving forward.
2: They're not. But really, I, they're missing out on something because, you know, for me, the real work and joy is to go out and, and find them and work on them and there's nothing like the experience of like you're the only person you're the first person who saw an animal that's been gone for 65 million years or more that's a pretty daunting concept
1: dino don lessum one of Steven steelberg's personal dinosaur consultants during the filming of the original jurassic park and if you're a shark tank fan then you saw dino don in season 12 uh, and uh, mark cuban threw in 500k to what he's doing He'll be in town tomorrow at Thanksgiving Point's Dinosaur Island Experience in the Ashton Gardens. Check tonight's show notes for a link for the lectures and the the movie screening and everything in the show notes tonight at krcl.org. So now we're going to go to Silvergate and Cook City, Montana. I got an email from a listener who said, hey, we're having some hard times up here. Can you help us spread the word? We start with some introductions.
3: I'm Chris. Um, okay. i the one who reached out to you guys. I've been a long-time listener and follower. and love your show. I'm the general manager here at Silvergate Lodge. Okay. And this is Henry Finkbeiner.
4: Hi, Henry. How are you doing?
3: Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm uh, the owner.
4: I
1: was reading about the uh, history of Silvergate. goes back quite a ways, doesn't it?
4: Yep. Uh, to uh, the 30s, it was built during the... Uh, the town was started during the Depression when they were building the Beartooth Highway as a Depression era project, and um, the park was already here, and so they just uh, they just uh, built the town. Uh, it was a always supposed to be a tourist town, and that's what it's always been.
1: Excellent. So, what's happened since the record breaking flooding of a couple weeks back in Yellowstone, and how has it affected Silvergate?
3: Yeah, in in Yellowstone, it shut down the park entirely for about a week. Um, In terms, uh, they have reopened part, the Southern Loop of Yellowstone National Park currently. They're planning on opening the Northern Loop that's not going to include kind of the Tower Junction Road to us um, due to, you know, I think it's five major issues in the road there. Um, And in terms of like tourism here in Silvergate-Cook City, we normally this time of year are at a hundred percent occupancy for the peak season. And we're at about, I don't know, renting a couple cabins a night instead of, you know, 30 something cabins per night. And, you know, sales are down about 98%.
1: Wow. Henry, that's got to be tough as the owner trying to make this all pencil out on paper.
4: Well, that that's not going to happen. Um, this year for us, I don't believe. But we do see an opportunity to make lemonade out of lemon juice. And um, we we think if we are able to attract customers up here for our cabins, where they can pay whatever they want to pay, nothing if they can't afford anything or just don't want to pay anything. But if they'll come up here, stay with us, spend money in the local economy at the other businesses around us, that we, we may be able to uh, eke out enough income amongst the businesses here in town to, uh, to get through this winter and, um, and then open up back up again next year with full access to the park. Um, we, we have a lot to offer up here. We're, uh, uh, our backyard, which is east of Yellowstone is called the Absarorka Beartooth Wilderness Area. It's the largest contiguous area in uh, the lower 48 states with an average elevation above 10,000 feet. And it is jaw-droppingly beautiful.
1: So what are you hearing from your fellow business owners and just folks living up there about how they're faring? Henry.
4: Uh, they're, they're, there's just very, very little business. Um, we, we're cleaning up from the flood. A few people suffered heavy damage for the most part uh, besides road damage. Bridge damage in a couple of homes. Uh, the, the the actual physical damage is not that much, and what we're hearing is that uh, people have let all their staff go to their, the hotels uh, in a lot of places. Uh, they're 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 operating with skeleton staffs, and um, the the community is coming together and um, forming different committee committees to try to figure out how to bring business here. And, um, and we all have our little expertise. Uh, some of us are good marketers. Some of us are good on social media. Some of us are good on AdWords, things like that. And I've just decided to try to, Chris and I have decided to try to uh, think outside the box and just um, offer our cabins for free to try to drum up just customers. We just need customers. And, and we also want to bring up people here um, just to connect them with nature and um, invite them to sit around a campfire and uh, talk about what we all have in common and what that uh, the separation sometimes that we hear out there uh, amongst us is is maybe not as great as what we have in common.
1: Well, I can hear the birds in the background as the two of you are talking with us and Chris maybe you can paint a picture for us. You're 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 from Utah and you can maybe describe what you get when you go to Cook City, Montana.
3: Yeah, so I mean I came up here originally 5 years ago and really I had lived in Utah mostly on the Wa- in Wasatch front between Heber, Springville, mostly in Salt Lake um, in the early to mid 2000s. And it was just getting a little busier. So I decided to take a summer off and uh, met Henry. So I came up here to you know, help manage his cabins and help out up here. And as soon as I got up here, I'm like, this is nicer than anything. Like not- nothing against Utah wilderness. Um, I am a desert rat at heart, so we don't have the desert here, but this rivals anything in the Wasatch, anything in the Uintas, you know, all the mountain biking, kayaking um fly world-class fly fishing um and we just never marketed that side of it because we didn't need to because yellowstone was right there we've been lazy so we're trying to get people up here because we're here because we want to connect people with nature that's our entire mission and with 30 plus empty cabins and rentals we're not doing anything so we'd rather have people up here for free going to the restaurant across the street going to the shop down the road and sitting by a campfire and getting those campfire connections going
1: so we're talking what seventy five hundred feet average temperature is what in the day
3: uh i think it's kind of warm today it's about seven it's not quite 75 today it's not (laughs) i do not miss the salt lake city it's a warm day we're in t-shirts i do not miss the salt lake city uh summers i miss the concerts but not yeah the (laughs) summer days and evenings
1: well, Henry, what do you love about where you are up there in Cook City and the Silvergate Lodge?
4: Wow, that's a big question. Um, definitely love uh, the animals. Uh, we had a pine Martin run through town uh, yesterday. You know, I opened my back door and I've got a, I'm looking at a 11,000 foot mountain above that 7,500 foot valley, snow cap uh, all year long. Looking at uh, mountain goats and bighorn sheep on the the mountains, uh, just probably a half a mile away, quarter mile away. Um, the uh, the hiking up here is uh, unbelievable uh, with the bounty bountiful rain that we recently received. You might have heard about it. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's why we're here right now. But uh, the the um, the mountains around us are greening, and um, and the uh, the wildflowers are going to be. Uh, abundant this year uh just in in numbers maybe that i've never seen in my 20 years up here um the uh the wilderness area of the apps Beartooth uh, mountains is a lot of it is above the tree line and so you you don't even have to hike on trails you know you can just hike off trail and just just walk and until you find the perfect camping spot uh it's uh it it is, you know, it's just jaw droppingly beautiful. Um, if you want to feel part of something bigger than yourself, you know, um, this is, this is a good place to come, come, come get that feeling.
1: Come and get a piece of that big sky country, right?
4: <laughs> yes, ma'am.
1: So how can people check you out online and, uh, see about getting up there and maybe helping out by injecting some of our money into your economy?
3: Yeah, I mean, I highly encourage people to just check out SilvergateLodging.com. They can give our reservation line a call and all of our reservationists are prepped with the pay what you can right now. So if people want to book a cabin and for just a cool week out of the Wasatch range heat, um, you know, SilvergateLodging.com 406-838-2371. And, you know, we'd love to have any and all visitors up here because we're not getting anyone into nature right now.
4: Yeah. We, we also um, are encouraging, encouraging groups to come. We have a lodge that can house uh, probably around 30 people, depending on uh, the, the uh, bed situation, the sleeping situation. Um, we have another 30 cabins to choose from. If there are groups that want to come up that can't normally afford to make the trip, we're Willing and ready to try to drum up some special funds for those groups to come, Uh, we want to take this opportunity to maybe get people up here who normally wouldn't come maybe wouldn't even you know normally be able to afford it. Um, So we're, we can't promise that but we're going to try our best if any requests come in.
1: That's Henry Finkbeiner, owner of Silvergate Lodging in Silvergate slash Cook City, Montana, and his general manager, Chris Conway, uh, formerly of Utah, a KRCL listener who reached out and said, hey, our towns are hurting up here with all this flooding that happened in Yellowstone. So check tonight's show notes uh, for a link to Silvergate and check them out. Another opportunity to talk about Uh, an adventure in the national parks is with my next guest. I spoke with her about a week ago, Alex Schnee of Alex on the map, just started some tours there. She grew up in Montana, lives in Brooklyn now, but, uh, she grew up in Montana and said Yellowstone was her playground every summer with her dad.
5: Of course, as a teenager, I'm like, "Ah, oh, this is the worst. I hate it. There's no cell service. But now it's like, I didn't appreciate it the way I should. So, <laughs> so now you're Brooklyn
1: based, but heading on back. So let's dig into this. Um, tell us about Alex on the map and what you offer folks and, and how what's happened in, in uh, Yellowstone is maybe changing that.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alex on the Map started as a general travel site, but my real expertise is national parks after growing up there. Um, Really what I do is I help people plan their national park trips and really make them once in a life experiences. We have so many amazing, beautiful places in the United States. You don't need to necessarily go abroad in order to have a trip of a lifetime. So that's what I help people with, with my site. Uh, Yeah, Yellowstone uh, with the flooding has changed things a lot. It has changed a lot of people's plans of what they were planning on doing, where they were going. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how it filters out over the next few weeks, uh, which parks people choose to go instead, or if they choose to cancel their trip altogether. So we'll just kind of see what
1: happens. Well, here we are at the 150th birthday of Yellowstone. And Yellowstone looks like it needs uh, billions to to rebuild the infrastructure that's been lost with this flooding. So what are your concerns in terms of um, the park as this great place, but also Uh, ecotourism in essence, that industry taking a hit.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a great perspective to look at it and say, okay, this is an ecotourism issue because Yellowstone in the past has been kind of um, a hallmark of doing ecotourism the right way, uh, rehabilitating species, that kind of thing. On the other hand, I do feel as really sad and unfortunate as this is, it is an opportunity for people to realize that these parks do need protecting. Um, We do need to be able to say, hey, you know, things need to be rebuilt. They need to be rebuilt in the right way. Um, So it it is, it's a terrible thing on the 150th anniversary birthday of Yellowstone. On the other hand, it is a, a chance for people to say, this isn't, uh you know this isn't a disneyland this isn't disney world this is nature and nature deserves our respect and appreciation
1: well, let's talk about that because June is Great Outdoors Month with hashtag escape the indoors. But uh, with COVID, we see, saw a lot more people trying to find some sort of relief or sanctuary by getting outdoors and not being prepared. What are some of the common mistakes you see people uh, make when they go to someplace like Yellowstone? This natural disaster happens and they're, you know, irritated and their Yelp reviews are negative. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I love the Yelp reviews where it, it, it says, oh, this national park is the worst. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way, but it's it's not that kind of place.
1: Yeah. And what's um, the complaints are like, there were bugs and animals. <laughs>
5: and you're like, okay, I thought that's why we were going, but that, that's all good um no a- absolutely that i think wildlife is a-, a big concern that many people have had uh, a 25 year old had an encounter with a bison in yellowstone a few weeks back um, I saw recently that people in Rocky Mountain National Park were taking pictures with moose. Not a great idea. Um, respecting wildlife, leaving wildlife alone is a big one. Uh, Leave No Trace absolutely is something that everyone should look into before they head into any form of nature, whether it's a national park, a state park, whatever you're looking to explore. Um, but really just learning to give nature some space and respect, staying on the trail, packing up your stuff, Um, Those basics are surprisingly not well known. So doing a little bit of research before you go to the park can make a big difference.
1: Yeah, like what's on your outdoor hiking checklist, Alex?
5: Mm, Absolutely. I like to prepare before I go. I think that's the number one thing is really looking into how long am I going to be outside? How long is this hike? Uh, Do I have the right gear for this hike? Do I have enough water? Um, Do I have enough food to last me? Uh, Keeping that in mind, um, I grew up in Glacier, so bears were a real concern. ran into a bear in Glacier last year, and I had my bear spray, but I knew to prepare for that because I had grown up near Glacier and I knew the rules. So really taking some time to do some research before you go can make your trip so much better. You can avoid dehydration, and you can avoid blisters by wearing the wrong hiking boots and and little things like that, that preparation goes a long way, especially with the reservation systems this year.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. That's where I was headed next for the uninitiated reservation systems are being added far and wide across state and national parks. What's your best tip? And um, as opposed to maybe seeing it as, oh, I've got to sign up, maybe we can use the reservation system to find pockets that aren't over camped.
5: Mm, Yeah, that's my, my favorite thing about this year is I think it's required people to explore different areas. Um, either within the park or around the parks. Um, My best uh, advice for someone looking for to really get on their reservations is to look into next year,
6: (laughs) quite honestly.
5: (laughs) Um, Pretty much all of them are booked in advance already. Um, So there are some hacks to get around it. You can get up really early um, and go in the morning, which personally I recommend doing anyway because you can enjoy the park So much more without the crowds. Um, there you can book local tours. That's a way to get in without reservations. Uh, there's there's a few different options, so don't panic if you don't have your reservations. There are still ways to get into the parks. Um, but on the other hand, if you want a seamless, you know, experience, I would look into it April of next year. That would be (laughs) kind of when I'd be looking into it, quite honestly.
1: So uh, you've just launched tours this week in Flathead Valley and Glacier National Park, in part to alleviate pressure on the park system. Can you kind of tell us what that pressure was looking like? What is that meaning with these record-breaking crowds?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I grew up in Montana, right by Glacier, there were very few crowds, you could just take your picnic lunch, head up there, take your dinner, uh, go to a camping spot and you wouldn't find anyone there in the in the height of summer when it was supposed to be busy. Um, since then, it has exploded in tourism as all the parks have, um, especially after COVID. So. Uh, record-breaking years every single year. Uh, So it it is a big difference. Some of my favorite hikes that I used to experience, no crowds, uh, now that is not the case. So it has put a lot of pressure on the staff in the park, as well as the natural resources, the hiking trails, the wildlife, um, and just in general, the infrastructure of the park because it, it was built a long time ago and many of our other parks as well. Um, so for me these tours they are outside the park they're in Flathead National Forest which is gorgeous it's millions of acres to explore um, some of those amazing views that you get similar to in the park are just outside them and it's it's just a great way to, kind of see a new side of Montana, too, because this is where the locals like to hike. This is these are their spots. So kind of sharing that and also sharing the opportunity to learn how to treat these places the right way when you visit.
1: Well, I was looking at your website. You make lots of recommendations and you're telling folks if they didn't get into Glacier National Park reservations this year. uh, You're also suggesting some other places. One in particular is Mount Aeneas. Am I saying that
5: right? You are. And then Lone Pine State Park. Yes. uh, Mount Aeneas is the one I am personally recommending for more advanced hikers. It's not the easiest hike, um, but it is one of the tours that we're leading. And again, you get those beautiful views into Glacier, which is fantastic. Most likely you'll see a mountain goat family, which is pretty fun. So you'll get your wildlife experience there too. And again, without the crowds, you don't have that issue. So that's fantastic. Um, Lone Pine is right by actually where my parents' house is. And it is just kind of this nice, quiet, serene little park uh, with a great visitor center. And this tour is more in line for those who want to learn about bear safety because bears are are a presence in montana they're a presence in alaska um you know the maybe not so much the lower 48 but you go to alaska and you're running into pairs so learning how to be prepared learning how to treat wildlife respectfully that's kind of the point of that tour
1: and that's up near kalispell so you've got weekly amas where folks can ask you anything how can people catch up with you online alex
5: Oh, thanks. Yeah. Head to my website, alexonthemap.com. I'm also Alex on the Map on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all the places. Uh, so, should be pretty easy to find me.
1: Well, thanks for checking in with
5: Radioactive, Alex. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on.
1: Alex Schnee, outdoor travel expert. And of course, check tonight's show notes to connect with Alex. June is great outdoors month so escape the indoors folks and you're listening to Radioactive I'm Laura Jones and joining me now we have Autumn Thatcher our red carpet correspondent and we're going to talk about this new movie about Ben Fong Torres what's it called we're going to play some of the trailer here it's called
7: like a rolling stone the life and times of Ben Fong Torres
6: Ben Fong Torres with you or without you on KCM The Jive 95. This guy, he, you know, he's
3: got some history. Ben Fong Torres.
4: Oh, I used to read him in Rolling Stone.
3: Ben Fong Torres
2: immortalized in almost famous. And this is Ben Fong Torres. I'm the music editor at Rolling Stone magazine. Before the internet, before blogging, before tweeting,
7: hello Rolling Stone. It
2: was the Rolling Stone. <laughs> there were superstars who worked there. One of the biggest was Ben Fong Torres. Ben Fong Torres polishes his piece on Jefferson Starship. Everybody read Rolling Stone magazine. Mick Jagger read Rolling Stone magazine. John Lennon read Rolling Stone magazine, and so everybody knew Ben Fong Torres. Hi, Steve.
6: How you
3: doing, oh. Ben Fong Torres? see you tonight there's a gentleman introducing Ben Fong Torres thank you Paul
1: Ben Fong Torres a new documentary on Netflix and our red carpet correspondent Autumn Thatcher has watched it she's got a review and a great interview coming up in just a minute in fact you weren't thinking you'd have the man himself but you did I did. Right
7: before the interview was going to take place, I got a surprise email from the publicist that he would be joining. And I
1: was so excited and starstruck all at the same time. We'll stick around. Coming up next, like a rolling stone, the life and times of Ben Fong Torres.
5: Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and their Love's Diversity Initiative. Mark
4: Miller Subaru is a proud community partner of Project Rainbow, spreading love together this Utah Pride Month. Learn more at projectrainbowutah.org
1: or markmillersubaru.com. The Utah Department of Health and Human Services has information and steps for parents affected by the infant formula recall and shortage. Now available in 28 languages in addition to English and Spanish. Visit health.utah.gov for details. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL. Democracy Now! coming up at 7, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike. The Dirty Boulevard with Gianni at 10.30. I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich at 1 a.m. Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3. And John Florence starts a brand new day for your Friday at 6. And now we're going to close the show with a conversation about and with Ben Fong Torres. Autumn Thatcher, our red carpet correspondent, helps us out a lot with our Sundance coverage. You had the opportunity to watch the film. And thumbs up? Oh. oh, wait one second, sorry. I'm so excited for the interview. <laughs> thumbs up? Absolutely, two thumbs up. Okay, so set this up. We're about
7: to start, but he gets sidetracked, right? He totally gets sidetracked. I. It was the day before the Elvis movie came out, and I asked him if he'd seen it, because he had a painting of Elvis behind him. And he tells me about, that. he gives a great uh, review of Elvis, but also uh, comes to find out that tonight he is performing at the makeout room in San Francisco as part of an Elvis tribute show.
1: And he's playing three Elvis songs that he's performing on stage. All right, here we go. Autumn Thatcher in conversation with the documentary filmmaker, Suzanne Jo Kai and Ben Fong Torres.
7: I'm so excited. I feel a little bit star to be chatting with you. Um, but I think my first question is, is that Elvis behind you? And if oh. so, how are you feeling about the big movie coming out? My mom is like, wanting to buy Elvis shirts to go see this movie. <laughs> uh-huh.
6: So she's already a fan.
7: Oh my God. Yes. Oh.
6: Yes. 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 She must see the film. It is by no means perfect. It is a Baz Luhrmann uh, uh, two and a half or more hours of overkill. He is, he is a circus nut, but he's talking about a circus guy, Tom, uh, Colonel Tom Parker and the way he, controlled and in many ways hurt Elvis's career. Elvis could have been worldwide much faster and he could have done much more in the movies. He could have been more seriously taken as an artist and he was unable to because of the constraints of Colonel Parker. Uh, But Tom Hanks does a wonderful job uh, playing this role, and uh, Austin Butler is superb as Elvis, a role that very few can manage uh, and he's arranging him over 15 years, I think, from about 20 to about early 30s. And it's remarkable how he does sound enough like Elvis in the early years, where Austin does the singing, and then uh, the real Elvis takes over after, I think, the transition to Las Vegas. I will say no more, but your mom will enjoy it.
7: Well, I guess transitioning over to the film about you... Um, Suzanne, let's start with a question for you. Why did you want to make a documentary on Ben Fong Torres,
0: and why has there never been one before? You know, those are crazy, really legitimate questions, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It all started uh, very, very uh, coincident, you know, like it just, like, like serendipity. So, both, uh, Ben, Ben had come down to Los Angeles to meet with Quincy Jones. And he said, Hey, uh, do you want to meet after uh, my meeting? And I said, of course. And so uh, over dinner, it just kind of was, was a question. I said, Hey, Ben, you're in everybody else's rock and roll documentary. Why isn't there one about you? And he thought for like, you know, he's a fast thinker. So he said, so why don't you do one? And then that's, how it started (laughs) and we've known each other for years we were both you know working journalists in the san francisco bay area and um i originally thought oh this is like you know a two years top film you know like that would be a really good enough time uh to do it and then i started to do the deep dive into um the research and i blocked out the whole world i didn't want to read anything see anything uh, just so I wouldn't subliminally, you know, catch somebody else's storyline. And so I did a deep dive into talking and interviewing the insiders, insiders at Rolling Stone magazine, and work with Ben, insiders, you know, with, with uh, the music industry, uh, insiders in the community. I'm from San Francisco anyway, you know, born and raised. So, you know, it's like um, uh, our epicenter from where we're all from, <laughs> Ben and I. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area, Ben, Oakland, and, you know, I'm San Francisco Bay uh, Area. So um, every interview I did with the insiders, music industry, family, community, was a revelation. And I thought, oh, wow, what an interesting life Ben has had that he never shared with me. You didn't um But, you know, many of his actually close friends are some saying some of the similar similar comments so um then then I went wide. I said okay what is really out there you, you know let me read all the books and you know everything else and of course I knew about Almost Famous but I considered that like semi-autobiographical bi- about Cameron Crowe and um and it had little bits of you know great pieces of uh segments of Ben in there uh an actor playing Ben so I I love that movie, but it, it, it wasn't really, um, I was trying to get to the truth, you know, as a journalist should. So then to my surprise, 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 I couldn't find anything. I mean, Ben's story is out there in little bits and he also has uh, books about himself and everything, but connecting the dots to his rock and roll life at Rolling Stone, and uh, that's what I was going after, how to connect the 100% person From his personal life and then the his um his writing life basically at rolling stone and editorial life and so that was my surprise and that became then a mission that i had to do this i had to um, do this film about ben fong torres because he really really deserves to be in uh, our american culture in the mainstream today his story and it seems to be missing so, <laughs> I mean, parts of it's out there, but connecting the dots, that's what I wanted to do. And I'm, I'm really glad.
7: Yeah. So, I mean, you've mentioned in other interviews that its t- it took you about 10 years to make the film, like you said, um, just moments ago that you started out initially thinking two years. Um, but then you dove into all that research and... What are some memorable moments from that research journey that you went on? And then how did you filter through so much amazing content to create the framework for this documentary?
0: That was uh, quite quite an adventure, let's say that. (laughs) So um, I ended up filming over, I stopped counting at 120, right? so over 120 shoots and if it's over let's say 12 years I had to be on the road I mean if you want to do basic math and scheduling and it, it probably uh that's one a month somewhere in the country lugging hundreds of pounds of gear all that kind of stuff so so uh and then something would tell me I gotta I've gotta interview one more two more Cynthia Bowman was uh Ben's executive assistant and I didn't have her on our lists. And I thought, you know, let me put that down. And let let me um, also interview Charles Perry, who worked alongside Ben in the early years. And then it was more of a revelation. So it became really, again, as I said, a mission to get this um, true story uh, on film. So and
7: Ben, were you how involved were you in I imagine both of you being storytellers, there's, there's opportunity for collaboration. And, and also, how, were you at all you know, invested in how this, your story was gonna be represented and, and helping kind of shape that, that framework for the film?
6: No, I just um, offered my um, materials, archives, stories, as much as I could. And um, I thought it was correct that the uh, director direct, the producer produce and she can find the story that she wants to tell. I'll help out to fill out that story. If anything uh, sounds wrong, I might let her know. But I think all through the 114 years it took, <laughs> rarely uh, ran across uh, a, um, a story that was untrue. Uh, of course, people exaggerate their memories and people uh, often don't remember, especially people from the 60s. For some reason, I'm not quite sure why that is, but um, I would make corrections if I knew about them. But by and large, I didn't know what was going on except hints from the shoots that she went on that involved me and events. So I got an idea. And sometimes I would overhear her uh, asking an artist or um, a, an acquaintance or a friend, a family member, certain questions, but that didn't tell me necessarily what the flow of the story was because you know a film, a documentary, uh, anything is uh, subject to m- many changes. So I just waited around until just before uh, last June when she was about to show it at Tribeca. And so she thought I might want to see it before it goes to the big screen at Battery Park. And so I saw it for the first time. I tried to stop it, but I couldn't.
7: <laughs> <laughs> and what was your, do you remember what that feeling was like when you watched it for the first time?
6: Um, it was very uh, moving. Uh, it was very emotional, although the great majority of it is, is pretty straightforward, telling the story of a guy. Um, but in her way of uh, um, interweaving four or five different storylines and streams in there it was you know quite a product that told about not only Rolling Stone and rock and roll but also the 60s and the revolutionary scenes going on there and the immigrant story of my parents uh, coming to America and raising a family of five and one of them went on to Rolling Stone magazine and then the last strain would be at Rolling Stone what the journalism was like. What was it all about? How did Rolling Stone help change the media scape, And what role did I have in it? And so all of that was quite fascinating. And I thought she wove it all together very well, found some fantastic sources, a couple of lousy ones, but by and large, (laughs) really uh, good storytellers with most of their brain cells intact. (laughs) So all of that.
7: Well, it was really fascinating to watch how invested music journalists used to be in the journey of the musician. Um, And so Ben, I'm just curious, pre-internet required so much more thought preparation and on the part of the artists that you were working with, Trust, Um, you were on a lot of tours and hanging out and witnessing these intimate moments. Um, I'm curious about how much of that happens today and how have the times changed since? since Uh, we began and for better or for worse?
6: Yeah, I don't know how much of that happens today. Uh, I'm guessing somewhere near 0% would be a rough guess because as you say, the the times have changed so dramatically. The media landscape turned topsy turvy about 20 or so years ago because all of mainstream media and new media were glomming onto pop culture and rock and all of the um, associated music. Uh, and entertainments. And so an artist who achieved success could have her pick of anybody from any media, be the Today Show, the the Tonight Show, it could be cable, it could be satellite, it could be, you know, it could be uh, what you do. And so um, now the artists, the agents, the managers, the record labels all had the say in what happened. Whereas 50 years ago, amazingly, Uh, Rolling Stone uh, had the pick of the litter and uh, the field to itself it was the only real game in town and so artists respected it because we didn't take that lightly. Uh, We always went after the truth and we always paid artists respect by researching. Uh, Research is easy today of course going online and Wikipedia and all that but back then you just did it however you could from album liner notes and from uh, just your own knowledge and consulting books and magazines. And so you did your homework so that when you sat down with a Sly Stone or a Linda Ronstadt or whoever, um, they will get the sense that you are prepared, you know what they're about, you're not gonna ask the same rote questions that others uh, have, and that you're gonna be skilled enough in the interview process to carry on what might become even a conversation as opposed to a straight Q&A interview. So we did all of that. And now I think it's much, much harder because later on when I was writing for Parade in the 90s, uh, the tables had turned fiercely. And so that for a cover story for the largest circulation magazine in the country, oh, you get 20 minutes and you'll be in the dressing room. And we'll have, uh, if you don't mind, our uh, press agent will be there too. Because you know there are certain things we don't want to bring up, do we? You know, what stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I I, I lost interest uh, at about that point in terms of following stars and trying to write about them because now you had a much greater challenge.
7: So this is something that I know um, it's shared in the documentary that some of the musicians that you've been interviewed um, throughout your career, especially during the early years when civil rights movements were happening. Um, said that they felt more comfortable talking to you because as as an Asian American, you came from a marginalized community. Um, It feels like that sentiment could still be expressed by some artists today. Um, So I was curious um, for both of you, Suzanne, as as you went and interviewed these artists who kind of spoke to that comfort that they felt um, with Ben through maybe shared lived experiences, if you agree um, with that, that it could be said today, and and um, Ben, what that was, what sort of experiences that allowed for you during the interviews? So sorry, the question in diverged into two <laughs> uh, separate ones I, for you, but I can
6: repeat the question of twenty minutes.
0: <laughs> I know, that <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> no, I I think you're absolutely absolutely right. Um, in fact, we opened the film as you know with Ben typing, and we kind of had this little reveal. Uh, Thanks, thanks to Doug Blatch, actually one of our executive producers and, and phenomenal uh, supervising editor. Because I was telling him that Ben has been writing for uh, a website that my then 14 year old son created to find his identity. And then Ben, uh, we created a column for Ben literally called Like a Rolling Stone. He's been writing. And I said, Doug, he, he's writing about anti-Asian racism today. And Doug turned to me and I remember he says, can you get that on camera tomorrow? <laughs> and we did, fortunately. So, so we opened with Ben typing and then near the end, uh, it reveals what he's ty- typing about. And uh, so it, it actually, our film is a 50, at least a 50, half a century look at America. In addition to the primary purpose for me is to establish Ben's true story in, into the mainstream. And that was really important, and is very important for me. Uh, then, as a residual, it is also a fifty-year look at America, and it's almost like the pendulum had swung back, you know, in a way. So I totally agree with you, one hundred percent. In fact, it's, I think it's even ups more upside down uh, today.
6: I will say that um, I I think I learned a lesson from watching Suzanne's film. Um, that there was that feeling of uh, more empathy on the part of uh, artists of color seeing me walk in. But back then, I must say, I didn't think of that angle. I thought more like we were all on the same crazy clown bandwagon, uh, hurtling from one city to another in the case of the major stars, Uh, except that we weren't on a bandwagon. We were sometimes on a Lear jet But whatever it was, it was an extraordinary existence that these folks had Uh, going from city to city, from arena to arena and seeing mobs of people screaming wherever they went, enjoying hit records and sometimes having fights within the band, Um, all kinds of issues. And I was part of it. I'm aware that there's a distance. I'm just a reporter and I kind of lag behind. And then once in a while, I get to sit with them and observe things but still, there was that feeling that we were in a bubble of our own, and so then later on, watching what Susanna come up with and some of the things people said, uh, it wasn't just uh, artists of color, but all artists are uh, have that feeling of being. It's like the Warriors, probably the uh, or all uh, uh, NBA teams, be like, "Oh man, you know, we're in a different world." So it was more that than than racial. But I certainly agree with uh, what Susanna's come up with in that, yes, there was a special, a little spark of kind of not recognition, but empathy and brotherhood when I walked in with my case and tape recorder and I'm not a white guy. Mm-hmm. So, although I aspire to be, but I, that wasn't in the, in the <laughs> card.
0: <laughs> now, you know, uh, Ben's very funny uh, wit. <laughs>
7: he seems to have so many sides that are just amazing and funny and and you know um introspective and there's all these different parts of of him and and so and and i would i would argue just based on the documentary that i you know that in in some ways ben you you downplay just a little bit how influential and successful you've become um so Suzanne, when you were making the film, what sides were you hoping to bring out, especially being that you had a personal relationship and had known him for quite some time? And, and how did you go about doing that?
0: So as a journalist, I was looking for everything, you know, every aspect, good and bad. If I found bad, I would, that would be in the film. But when you've done 120 plus shoots with people, some of them have not talked to each other in 40 some years. And they're saying the same thing over and over and over again about Ben. Then I said, "How's this even possible? Where, where are his flaws? You know?" And I just had to go with the truth of what I was hearing from these people who have not talked to many, many others uh, at Rolling Stone, you know, and also in the in, in the industry community, all of those people. And I think part of it is is uh, Ben is just really he's a big, fun personality, but he's a very, underneath is a very humble person. Mm -hmm. And so there you've got kind of a kaleidoscope person, which I, you know, don't know everything about Ben, even now, but I know that what I have discovered for the film is is extraordinary, really extraordinary. Um, And I also had a lot of pressure uh, from the fellowships that I uh, accepted, the pressure, uh, I'll give you, just give you one. Um, and these are major guilds in Hollywood, you know, that they was, okay, we picked your eight projects and, and ours was one of eight, right? And not all documentaries, just ours was like one of two. You all have the potential and the responsibility because you can make potential change in our world, meaning uh, stop uh, or, or be part of the you know, positive social change in, in our country and worldwide. And they were pointing to um, a fictional film, I think it's called Black Panther. It's big, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, Marvel comics. And that actually became, you know, uh, an impression of African Americans, for example, or Africans in Africa. But then it became popular uh, as a technologically advanced society, um, you know, really smart. And they actually brought it back home in broad daylight at the end of the film to Oakland, California, which is, you know, coincidentally where Ben was was born, actually right next to Oakland and Alameda. So I had that kind of responsibility to see what we could do with our film, you know, uh, knowing already I had already done probably a hundred of those shoots that this person needs to be out there, the story needs to be out there. The other, the second. Pressure I had is to apply for grants. You know, as a television broadcaster, we talk conversationally, and my grammar, well, you know, it's. <laughs> I need. Mean, I, so I had. I still have uh, two friends uh, who are senior uh, manager. Um, you know, like uh, uh, managing editors. You know, at the Los Angeles Times. I won't name their names because they might be embarrassed. <laughs> so, so they they would help me on the grammar on my grant applications and then they realized after looking at some of my early researches wait a minute Suzanne we are all used to having multiple 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 editors in fact at the LA Times we call ourselves the anthills there's so many of us journalists and and editors right and then I grew up in a newsroom the NBC station in San Francisco as a broadcast journalist in my early 20s and yes I just thought there's lots of editors so then they pointed out if Ben is one of one, he's one editor in charge of daily music coverage, then and then I got this by email. That means he helped change, he helped uh, shape American culture. Period. Whoa! So then all of a sudden the bar went up higher. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so our, we had to jump over to that bar on top of all the other you know bars uh, that were taught to us. So I'm glad that I think we we uh, accomplished most of the heights we had to jump over.
7: (laughs) I mean, as a viewer, I would certainly say that you did and it's just a beautiful film and thank you for making it and thank you for sharing Ben's story. Ben, thank you for letting her make it. Um, What message, or maybe not even a message necessarily, but what would you hope that maybe younger viewers that don't have kind of that connection to music journalism that um, existed when you first got started with Rolling Stone, what would you say to them? What sort of, I guess, messages about that would you have? And in, in, in just in general, maybe not specifically to music journalism,
6: but... Wow, that is a, a tough question, a good one but uh, uh, tough, because uh, on the one hand, you do want to give uh, younger people, especially those interested in uh, media, um, optimism, and uh, tell them everything's gonna be all right. And right now, everything isn't all right. You know, the media is so, so uh, run on just the bottom line, but it always has been. And there've always been holes you can find. or are always pioneers out there trying to do something new and different and more open. Uh, so watch for those openings. That's, that's what I say to them. I also think that uh, a lot of people think music has changed for the worse. That's a generational thing. Every generation thinks the previous generation's music uh, uh, was better, uh, and now the current music is horrible. Well, uh, that's just the way it is for music fans. You know, you, you, you glom on to one or two kinds of music, and so then the rest is junk. But I say maintain an open ear, and, and uh, as the years pass, you'll find that there's, there are treasures in all strains of music, and music, the best music is still saying things to uh, not just younger people, but to everybody uh, who listens. And the uh, uh, Asian angle, you know, um, yeah, it's a hard time right now to be a person of color, and uh, there's, there's more hatred out there, more violence, more insanity than ever. Uh, we suffered through some years of terrible leadership that led us to this state. Um, but again, you know, uh, listen to what an artist like David Crosby might say—that uh, it's always darkest before the dawn. So, get in, stay in there, persevere, uh, and join the good fight. And um, uh, also, the '60s, you know, uh, is part of this. And so, look into that era. it's your parents' era in some cases, or your grandparents' era, and there was both fantastic good stuff that came out of there, as well as um, some destructive uh, things that happened out of there. So ferret through that history and try to learn from the best as well as from the worst moments of the 60s. And all of that for the price of one Netflix click, that's not a bad deal from Suzanne Jo Kai and company.
1: The best music is still saying things to people. Ben Fong Torres, in his own words, in conversation with filmmaker Suzanne Jokai and our own Autumn Thatcher. Thank you for a great interview. Where can folks catch up with Ben Fong Torres? So if
7: you have time to find your way to San Francisco tonight, you can <laughs> sneak into the makeout out room for an Elvis tribute show where he'll sing Teddy Bear, Little Sister, and Love Me. With a live band. With a live band and, and half a dozen other Elvis singers. Um, or you could <laughs> pop into Instagram and check out for his stories tonight to see if you can catch him singing that. Uh, at fong
1: torres there we go we'll put a link in the show notes to his instagram because he's, this looks like he just started so folks help help him get his follower count up but also to the netflix documentary like a rolling stone the life and times of ben fong torres and we're going to post all of this in the show notes folks so do check it out i'm laura jones thank you autumn thatcher for coming down and uh, have a great night thank you democracy now is next
4: KRCL, Salt Lake City.